Our key scripture this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there today. I'll be reading it for you here. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. God bless you, and we're done for today. (laughs) Encouraging words. I read them every morning just to make sure I get the day started off right. I have them posted up in my bathroom right next to my hang-in-there cat picture. And uh, on one hand, when you read these kinds of words, it's a little bit hard to believe that these are actually in the Bible. Uh, And it's for this reason. The, The themes that we have come to expect from our scripture readings are nowhere to be found in this particular passage. Where is the, I can do all things through him who gives me strength? Where, is, uh, those, where are those references that talks about God being victorious? This passage, it seems so very, very depressing. That's because it is. It is depressing. So why... Is it in the Bible in the first place? Why do we have these words? Why were they included in Scripture? Because here's the thing that maybe you haven't considered about these particular words before. The Bible, we believe, is an inspired book. Everything is there for a reason informed by God and meant to teach us something about ourselves and the God that we serve. So, in that light... This particular passage may be one of the more important passages in helping us to understand ourselves. The writer is looking for one particular thing. He is looking for meaning. He wants to matter. He wants his life to have significance, and yet, everywhere he looks, he sees a lack of meaning. Everything has been done before, everything has been seen, everything has been heard, there is nothing new under the sun, whatever you say has been said, and it's not like you can fill these things anyway, there is nowhere to go from here. Life is meaningless, he says. As readers of the Bible, we want him to go ahead and resolve this issue for us, though. But if you think that I just chose these verses 
from chapter 1, and then he goes on to say something nice, you're wrong. Because he finishes chapter 1 saying how wisdom is meaningless. He's in a bad place in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He doesn't resolve any of these feelings for us. Instead, he goes on and keeps talking about it. And these words, as difficult as they are, church, they need to be spoken in the Bible. And they need to be spoken because they express something that is true about all of us. And that is this. We want our lives to matter. And we are searching for meaning. In many ways, life here on earth is a continual search for significance and meaning. We search for the person who will love us and live our lives with us. We have children and we dedicate ourselves to raising them. We pursue careers and climb as far as we can in our respective fields. All of these things provide us with meaning and purpose, and we center our lives around these pursuits. But what happens when the thing that gives us meaning all of a sudden becomes meaningless? What then are we left with? You've poured yourself into a company, and the company decides to downsize. You have centered your life around your family and your spouse leaves. You have built a castle that falls down. We are a people in search of meaning and in our worst moments, which many people have had to face over the last few weeks, we are sometimes left with the question, what is the point? We need to pause for a moment this morning and understand that this is a question that everyone asks at some point in their lives. And while we may as Christians want to rush to meaning, we need to allow this question to resonate for a moment at the center of who we are. Because the way we answer this question can make all of the difference in the world. What is the meaning of our lives? Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? What is our purpose? Everyone, everyone wants to know. Uh, So this morning, we are continuing our campaign. If you haven't been uh, with us here over the past several weeks, we are uh, studying this question, this idea, how to think like a Christian. And we have covered a lot of ground so far. Uh, So I'd like to just give you a couple of, to remind you of a couple of things. All the lessons are online. So if you want to go back and listen to anything, uh, you're welcome to do so as my notes are online as well. Uh, So... We, we started our conversation with a few key points that I want to remind you of. And, and that is sort of the basic premise of where we're coming from. As Christians, we work to live the kind of lives that God would have us live. And our, our, our task, our job while we're here is to hear the voice of God and, and to follow his direction. But we are influenced by all kinds of different ideas around us. And um, as we've been talking about over the last several weeks, these different ideas can influence the way that we think. Um, they can sneak in, and uh, the, the terminology we've been using is that ideas are like viruses. Uh, in particular, the idea that has been key to us is that um, 
bad ideas can kind of wrap themselves in good ideas and things that sound like they're from God and things that sound like uh, something that God would want us to think or believe. But really when that those good ideas are stripped off, the core of it is is something that goes against what God would have us do. And so we've been talking about uh, how we are influenced by five uh, basic worldviews. The first one uh, is secularism, which claims that we can use human intelligence to control life and make it turn out the way we want. Uh, secularism basically says that we are at the top of the ladder. We are the greatest accomplishment in all of nature, and, and therefore we are the ones who determine how things go. The second idea is Marxism which declares that life is about capital and uh, the true path to peace and equality is through violent overthrow of all existing social structures, which includes government, economic systems, family, and religion. Uh, the third idea is postmodernism, which insists that objective, capital T, truth, doesn't actually exist. That there is really only lowercase t truth, which we create for ourselves. So everyone gets to decide what is, and here's the key term in postmodernism, true for them. Uh, the next idea that we're influenced by is new spirituality, which, which asserts that there is a higher consciousness or God force, and uh, that we are to connect to this God force in order to have the kind of life that we want. Uh, and then the last idea that which we've been talking about is Islam, which teaches that everyone is born Muslim, in submission to Allah and must conform to Islamic truth or be conquered through jihad, the struggle against anything that is posed to Allah and Islam. So we've been covering uh, different kind of big life questions. Okay, The first week we talked about, uh, am I loved? If I were to disappear from the face of the earth, would anyone miss me? Uh, the second week, why do I hurt? Bad things have happened to me. Can I overcome them and find joy? This week we are looking at the question, does my life have meaning? Is it possible for me to find direction and really to know what I'm about here on earth? Uh, question number four, why can't we just get along? What will it take for us to stop fighting and find harmony? And question number five, is there any hope for the world? So many things seem to be going wrong. Ain't that the truth? Are we doomed? Now, the set of ideas that we form in answer to these different questions is our worldview, uh, the lens through which we look at life and the world around us. And we want our worldview to be formed by God and not by other ideas. So we want to be able to think like Christians. Now, to this week's question, which as I already stated earlier, is a pretty big one, right? Does my life have meaning? As I stated earlier, you know, it would be hard, I think, to find someone whose life is not swept up in a search for meaning, in a search for significance. It is a core part of who we are, this desire to matter, to do something that matters, to be someone that matters. And everyone is looking for something to make their lives meaningful, to fill that need that we have, to, to be viewed as something significant in this world. And the, the truth of the matter is that in our search for meaning, we can latch on to any number of things. 
There are all kinds of things that can give us our primary sense of purpose and meaning in the world. We mentioned some earlier. You know, maybe it's our family, uh, your marriage, your children. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's what you're still looking to accomplish in your life. These goals that you've set out for yourself and haven't quite reached. And all these things, they can become the center of who we are. They can become our reason for being, to take the next step in our job, to get our kids to the next point. But here's kind of the scary thing. Meaning can sometimes be very difficult to find. I know that seems weird considering we've just said we can be informed by all of these different things, right? But true meaning and purpose can be elusive to us, right? Among today's young adults, only 40% strongly agree that there is an ultimate purpose in life. 40% that there is an ultimate purpose in life. Uh, Stanford University professor William Damon has said that only about one in five young people ages 12 to 22 say they know where they want to go in life, what they want to accomplish, and why. What does that mean? It means that the generations that are coming up are less sure about things. They're less sure about things. What is true, what is not true. What life is about, what life is not about. What you can hold on to and what you can't. We talked about postmodernism earlier. Uh, This is one of my my favorite stories about uh, postmodernism in our world today. But we mentioned earlier that postmodernism says... There is no objective truth. Capital T truth. This is true for everyone. Okay? Postmodernism says that doesn't exist. Instead, it says that we are allowed to choose our own truth. So a college professor, and I'm sorry I didn't look this up. I should have. But a college professor a couple of years ago published a study where um, he found that in his freshman seminar classes, his students did not have the ability to critically think. So he posed a question to them that they were supposed to write about. And they were supposed to say whether they agreed or disagreed with this, why they agreed and why they disagreed. But what he found was that the basic argument he got from most of his students was, well, I just think this is true and the other thing is stupid, more or less. But they could not reason through why they thought it was true or why the other idea was false. It was simply a matter of whether they agreed or disagreed with the statement. And that's as far as they had been trained as college freshmen to, as college freshmen's, freshmen to think. That was as far as they could take it. People are not sure anymore. What is the one thing, the two things, the three things that we are supposed to be about? And... It's not just young people either. It's not just young people who are feeling that. I, I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with people who have worked for years in a particular field and have found themselves at a point where they don't want to do that anymore. And they've spent 20, 30 years doing the same thing. And they find themselves at this place where it just doesn't mean anything, and they wonder, well, what am I going to be about now? What am I going to do? How do I find a new, a new emphasis 
for my life? And the question that has been most often asked when I have these conversations with people are these questions. What is the point of what I'm doing anymore? Why didn't I find something that I was really passionate about? And they find themselves going every day to do something they don't want to do anymore. Does that sound familiar to anyone? We are all searching, sometimes desperately, for meaning. And this search for meaning and our desperation to find it makes us vulnerable to ideas that are outside the realm of God. If something shiny comes up in front of us, and says, I can give your life meaning. Sometimes we grab onto that thing with both hands. And aren't we guilty of having a, well, when this happens mentality? I'm going to focus on this, and but then when I get to this point, then I will do this. You know, I'm, I'm going to focus on my career. I'm going to focus on, you know, whatever it is, my education, all these different things. And we are relying on those things to give us meaning and purpose. So let's take a second and do as we've been doing. We're going to look at how these five different ideas, what they have to say about our search for meaning. Uh, and then we're going to focus in on one particular worldview. Uh, so first, secularism. Secularism says uh, there is no ultimate meaning, that the material world is all there is. Okay? So every problem is a material problem and therefore can only be addressed by a material solution. In the absence of ultimate meaning, people gain value from their relationships and their environment. Our aimlessness comes from defective relationships and an unsupportive environment. In other words, under the idea of secularism, if you need more meaning, just get more stuff. Or do more things. Or have more accomplishment. That is how you gain meaning in life. Marxism, Marxists encourage people to rise up in revolution against outside forces that keep them from living meaningful lives. You, you know the old statement, it's the man holding you down, right? That's what it's about. And if you can, if you can shed the shackles of what other people are trying to put on you, then you can have the meaning and fulfillment that you're looking for. Have you heard that before? I've, I have. New spirituality. Um, although some worldviews say we gain meaning by focusing on ourselves, the new spirituality worldview uh, leads followers sort of in the opposite direction. And, and this is where you see Buddhism really play into new spirituality at this point. Um, because within the Buddhist tradition, you deny the self altogether. Uh, within Buddhism, the goal is to reach this sort of transcendental nature where you float above everything else. You, have, you don't have any attachments on earth, not to any people, not to any places, not to any things. Uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, who is the spiritual leader of Tibet, he says that attachment is the source of all our misery. And only when we rid ourselves of ego and become one with the universe can we be set free from meaninglessness. All you have to do is just lose yourself completely. That's all. That's all you have to do. Uh, Islam. Islam says meaning comes through submission to God, which sounds good at first, but if you've got to remember, Islam is coming from a slightly different angle than we are. 
The Quran states, those who believe and whose hearts find satisfaction in the remembrance of Allah, for those who believe and work righteousness is every blessedness and a beautiful place of final return. Basically saying, everything about you has to be submission to God. And so they engage in daily prayer and other rituals that they believe will conquer faithlessness and build a global community of people who are obedient to Allah. And the path to meaning comes from fighting against the rest of the world. Uh, jihad, which is the command to Muslims to master their rebelliousness and restore all people by force, if necessary, to their original state of being Muslim. Now, I don't know, for, for those of you who have been going through this with us, um, and in your small groups, hopefully you've been having good discussions along the way, but here's something that has surprised me, uh, and I don't know whether this has struck you as well. Um, I have been surprised, like when, when we talk about the search for meaning, for those of us who have gone to church, we have a sense already, I think, for how God and Jesus give our lives meaning. But here's what surprised me. These other worldviews don't really have any sort of positive answer to that question. What is the meaning of life? Right? And we've seen it before, too, in, in some of the other questions that we face, that the solutions that these other ideas are giving to us, at least to me, are not really very satisfying. And what's surprising to me is about that is within the secular world, Christianity is often played in such a negative light. Why would you want to have relationship with God? Why would you want a God who just wants to control you or do this or that or, or take away from you? But the one thing that has really stood out to me, and I think it's clear again this morning, is that there are not really a lot of other good options out there. There are not really a lot of other good options out there for bringing meaning to life. And we are going to see that that is especially true uh, in the postmodern worldview. I don't know if you paid attention the last two weeks to other people as you were driving around town. Did you? But as much as we are a society and culture that is built on small tidbits of information, um, I think that was magnified a hundredfold over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we are always on our phones, true? But... During the fire, we were always on our phones. And you would see people standing out in street corners, looking at the sky and then looking at their phone, and then looking at the sky and then looking at their phone. We were plugged in waiting, you know, waiting for the next Mixel alert to tell us, get out. Right? We were all waiting for those moments. And here's what I found. I don't know if you felt the same way. My, <laughs> my brain is small. Let's just get like that clear right away. So it gets full really fast. I could hardly concentrate on anything. Anything. We are all distracted, and like I said, particularly now, from our, from our waking moment to our last conscious thought each day, we are given all kinds of information. Listen to this. Every passing minute, 204 million 166,667 email messages are sent. YouTube users upload 48 hours worth of new video. Twitter users send more than 100,000 tweets. And Instagram users share 3,600 new photos. And that's probably increased since I started 
that paragraph. In our distracted state, we tend to pick up lots of little stories. Um, how many times have you had a conversation with someone where they say, hey, have you heard about this? And they have a piece of something, right? And maybe you have another piece that you add to that. We pick up lots of little stories. Our, our, our society right now is, is, is divided up into these tiny segments, 30-minute television programs, 3-minute songs, 30-second commercials, slogans, bumper stickers, social media memes, without ever grasping the bigger story that is going on in the world around us. We have become episodic people, going from one small thing to the next. And because of that, we're left with thousands of fragmented plot points about what life is about. Thousands of these little small ideas. Well, maybe it's about this or maybe it's about that. No, it's really about that. And these bad ideas that we've been talking about, they hitch on to these different messages and they sneak their way in. With lots of little stories, church, there is no overarching story. And if you can't see the overarching story, it is easy to conclude that there is no overarching story. That there is nothing holding all of this together. And that is the essential claim of the postmodern worldview. There is not a big story. There is no big story there. And personal experience is really our source of meaning. Postmodern worldview says that there is no ultimate meaning in life. That we ought to be suspicious also of those who say, that there is. How can you tell me what is true? This is true for me. That is basically the mantra of the postmodern worldview. So we humans in this worldview are basically just ever-evolving social animals with multiple subjective interests crying out for recognition and acceptance. And basically what we are left with is once you peel away all of the layers of who we are and what we do and what we have, there is really nothing left. Now, here is what, I'm sorry to get off on this again. People choose this over God. All the time. People choose this over God. The more I think we have ventured to understand and explain all the mysteries of this world, the further we have moved away from understanding that there is an inherent meaning to life, that this actually does matter, that you actually matter, that who you are actually matters. Because after all, if everything that exists can simply be explained as part of an unsteered process, then how can there be meaning attached to that? If you're here by accident, because two atoms rubbed up against each other somewhere along the line, then what is life really about? And so into this space, the church is challenged. We want to scream into this space, well, God gives meaning, obviously. God gives meaning, obviously. I mean, come on, look at everything that God has to offer. 
And it's true that the Christian worldview stands opposed to all of these ideas. But here's the problem for us, I think. One, the message of how God gives meaning has been so watered down and so strung out that who knows what someone has heard about what it means to live a life for God. And who knows if it's even different than what they've heard from a postmodern worldview or a secular worldview or any of these other things. So what we need to try to do this morning, and we don't have nearly enough time to talk about the meaning of life. We understand that, right? We're going to come up short. We don't have nearly enough time. But here's what we want to understand as simply as possible. We want to understand in what way Christianity gives meaning to life and how that is fundamentally different from everything else. In what way Christianity gives meaning to life and how that is fundamentally different from everything else. One of the primary ways that Christianity differs from these other points of view is it says one very simple thing. Whatever you think about life, there is something more to it. There is something more to life. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be uh, jumping around a little bit today, but I invite you to open up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 will be in verses 7 through 10. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and... Um, trying to guide them along the the difficult path that he was walking. Here's what he said. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, here's something that we have done with this verse, and this is a pet peeve of mine. So we like to take verses like this one and just use the last part of it. Okay? Which is good. The last part of it is really good. Where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But there is a whole context that this verse is taking place in. Okay? And here is the context of this passage. Jesus says that he is the what? He is the gate. He is the way in and out. Alright? And he is the gate for the sheep. All who have come before are not the gate. They are what? Thieves and robbers. Whoever comes in through the gate will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. In other words, they will continue to be sheep. They will eat, they will live, they will thrive, they will survive. But any other way that people go, they are exposing themselves to what? Thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers. You might be asking yourselves, what do thieves and robbers steal from sheep? Well, they steal the sheep, people. That's what they do. They take the sheep from the place they are supposed to be to live and thrive, and they remove them from that place. 
And so Jesus describes the situation when he comes to the end. Here is what he says. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came not just so that we can have life, but so that we can have a full life, a abundant life, a life that overflows. But what does that life look like? I mean, we can go up to anyone and say, God has so much to give you, he wants you to live an abundant life. And they're going to ask us, well, how do I have an abundant life? What does that mean? What does that mean? That I have an abundant life. How would we answer that question? We see it reflected, I think, in the life that Jesus lived. So stick with me here for a second. Jesus was here on earth to do the redemptive work of the Father. So that word redemptive is important. Okay, Not just the work of the Father, but the redemptive work of the Father. And everything that he did, and everything that Jesus said, and everyone he spent time with, in every moment he understood that his job was to reveal the love of God to everyone he came into contact with. Everyone he came into contact with. Now sometimes that meant that he kicked some people in the seat of the pants because they were misrepresenting the love of God here on earth. Sometimes he challenged those people, but moreover, what you see in the Gospels is that he showed people who had no clue about how much God loved them, just how deep and wide the love of the Father is. This is something that we totally take for granted, though we talk about it a lot. Jesus purposely looked for people to spend time with. And these people were the people that no one else wanted to be around. No one else wanted to be around them. He spent time with the undesirables, the dangerous, the smelly, the uneducated, and in each case... By introducing them to the love of God, he fundamentally changed who they were. Think about that for a second. These people that no one wants to be with. Jesus was with them. And by being with them, he fundamentally changed who they were. What makes the Christian meaning different than other meaning. And here it is. This is what really sets us apart. The life of Jesus tells us that God can give us purpose, but this purpose is not about making ourselves important. Every other worldview tells us that it's all about the pursuit the pursuit of getting more, of becoming more, of gaining more, of having more respect, and yet Jesus stands in the face of all of those things. And he says that meaning is not about making yourself important, it is about making God important. And when you make God important, it changes who you are, and it changes the lives of other people. Because it's not about you. And it's no mystery. I mean, think about it just objectively for a second. 
If all of us are walking around on this earth trying to make ourselves the most important thing, then where are we going to find meaning? You can't give me any. The people that you work with, they can't give you any. Because we're all trying to make ourselves. We're trying to raise ourselves up. Raise our families up. Raise these different things up. But Christianity says that you do not live for yourself. And we have tried, people outside the church I should say, have tried to make that statement. You don't live for yourself, about some sort of message about, well, see, God is trying to take you over. But here's the thing. When we live for God, when we're not living for ourselves, and we live for God, we start living for other people. We start living for other people. Jesus lived a life for God, and that life lived for God changed the lives of everyone that he came into contact with. He lived for God, and he served others, and it was the whole reason that he was here. What does Jesus tell us are the two most important things we could ever do? Number one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about this, so we're not going to go over all this again, but you can't do one without the other. You cannot love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and ignore your neighbor. You aren't doing it. Those are the two things. Jesus says everything hangs on those two commands. So Christianity says that there is more to life. There is more. There is more than me just trying to build my own castle. There is more than me trying to elevate myself. There is a God who is above all things and as I live for Him, I will change the lives of others. But secondly, and this is just as important, We are called, deep within who we are, to live this kind of meaningful life that Jesus talks about. We are called to live our lives for him, like him. Which means that we are not just living to fill some deep-seated need within ourselves. We are living to make a deep Difference for God in this world. And we are like the batteries. We are. There are a lot of things that we could do. None of them really make a lot of sense considering what we are. There's really only one thing that makes sense. A battery is made to give power to something. Jesus calls us to be what we were made to be. And that is in relationship with God. Psalm 139, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. From Psalm 39, verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 16, the writer says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. To verse 13. 
For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This passage flies in the face of all these other ideas that say there is no meaning in life. Because here's what it speaks to. That you are not actually here by accident. And here's the other thing. Yes, God created the world, but it's more than that. God created who? You. God created you. You as the unique snowflake that you are. God created you. God knows you. He knows how you work, how you think. He knows what all of your hang-ups are. He knows all about you. And he created you like you are. He created you like you are. And understand, the writer, as, as he's writing this, he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. That line always strikes me as funny because he's talking about himself. Right? <laughs> I am wonderful. But here's why he can say that. Because somehow in this moment of realization, which, by the way, this might be the same person who wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In this moment of realization, he looks at himself. And he says, God made me, and that is wonderful. That I am known by God. That I am known by God. God created us to reflect his goodness in this world. And the writer of the psalm, this psalm knows great purpose and meaning, even though, and this is good for us to understand, he loses it from time to time. Okay? Just because we say that God gives our life purpose and meaning doesn't mean that we're never confused or lost or hurt. It doesn't mean that. But God gives us purpose and meaning. And when we are connected to God and we are doing the things that God wants us to do, when we are loving other people, it fills us up. It fills us up. Some of you have had that experience being able to help people with the love of God over the last couple of weeks. Some of you have gotten to help someone find clothes. I got to go to the store yesterday and buy bedding for a family of four. We have these moments where, you know what we're doing? We're living for God. We are, we are being who God wants us to be. And, and God wants us to live for him and he wants us to love other people, and there are people that are wandering around looking for someone to love them. For someone to stand up and say, I will help you with this. And when we do those things, our hearts are full. Because we are being who God designed us to be. A lover of God and a lover of people. 
He calls to us to live for more, to be His ambassadors here on earth. He calls for us to bring those who are away back to Him. He calls to us, and the truth is that our hearts long to answer that call, to find those moments where we put ourselves aside and we live for something else. I mean, can't you identify that in yourself? Those moments where you put yourself aside and you lived for something else. And how full we feel. How is the meaning that God offers us different? Well, it asks us not to live for ourselves, but to live for something else. Something that cannot fail. It asks us to be who we are. It doesn't ask us to violate ourselves. It asks for us to be who we are. And it asks that as we live a life where we love God, to change the world around us. And I would rather live that way than any other way. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the purpose and meaning that you give us. God, you say that you have created us, not just as people or humanity, but you created each of us, that you know us. And God, you call us to be your people. God, there are so many things that look to be the answer to that question, what does my life mean? But Father, may we realize this morning that we are most who we are meant to be when we love you and love others. And Father, as we encounter those who do not have this sense of life, may our hearts be overwhelmed that they know life abundantly, the life that you have to offer that lifts us above even the worst around us. We thank you for that because that is the miracle of your redemptive work, God, that you take what is broken in this world and you redeem it and make it something new. We thank you for all of that, for your love, for the way that you call to us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have any needs for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in this way and wants to fill your life with goodness and love and purpose and meaning. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.